Hey, hey. Hey, Matt. How's uh, it going, man? I figured it all out. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Yeah. That's awesome. How, How are you doing, doing man? Oh, okay. Yeah. How's it going? Pretty good. Can't complain. How about you? Good, good. Doing well. Are you uh, busy as usual with uh, research projects on psychedelics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of projects going on. Nice, nice. Well, listen, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, we, we've had on a few people um, in the psychedelic realm before, um, but most of them have been therapists, guides, counselors, people who've done it um, themselves and have written about it and are sharing their experiences. Um, but we haven't had somebody who's actually looked at, um, who, who looks at the data for a living and does these uh, rigorous studies. So you're the first kind of academic researcher we've had on. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to have you on to kind of bring more of the, uh, the science into the psychedelic world, which I think there are both uh, benefits and downsides to, to doing that because I mean, psychedelics, they're so subjective and they're so powerful. Then there's so much variability and it's, 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 it's like psychedelic itself is such a limiting term. Like there's so much diversity within, within this field and there's so many different Mm -hmm. things to look at. So um, sometimes I find that using just a, a rigid scientific approach can sometimes miss some of the deeper nuances and, and kind of the beauty of this area. But, but at the same time, sometimes people can go too far into the subjective and kind of miss on what we actually know about it. And so it's important to bring in the scientific method and to look at the research that your team has done at uh, Johns Hopkins um, and really understand what, what it is that we know and what we don't know and what we can extrapolate from the data. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'll try to represent science well. That's a lot of weight <laughs> on my shoulders. <laughs> and I'm probably not the best representative. I don't know. But uh yeah, 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 I'll do my best. I mean, and, yeah. but, uh, total agreement. I mean, god, I mean, there's so many examples. It's like, you know, science doesn't touch ethics, you know? It's like, well, what do you do with what do you do with knowledge when you, have, you know, like, well, that's completely like, you know, science is neutral on that. So, I mean, yeah. you know, every, every, every tool we, you know, the humanities, you know, art, literature, metaphor, poetry, uh, you know, I mean, spirituality, religion, myth as well, right? Right. Oh yeah. You know, so which is, in fact, I've said this before. It's like, why, why is psychedelics so interesting? Like, why are they so interesting? Because, well, one way to answer that is like, it just, I can't imagine a more cross disciplinary area. I mean, like hardcore chemistry, hardcore pharmacology, hardcore promising clinical findings, you know, on, you know, a, a, a history and prehistory you couldn't make up. Like, what a role they've played in our culture. Um, you know, for, since the 50s and 60s, for, for example. What, I mean, just all of these levels of analysis the you know see what the artists have to say about it and uh you know so complete agreement there science is just kind of one thing to do it's a really important thing um and and in certain respects it's irreplaceable i you know in terms of you know developing something in modern society as a medicine it's uh 
It's uh, you need it. There's no, no there's no other game in town, and uh, and 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 so it's it's particularly you know useful and important for the development of these things as as medicines in, in the modern world. But yeah, science by itself is mm-hmm. never going to uh, you know answer all questions about psychedelics. The same way that science will never understand you know all questions about you know love and human nature, but but we can. But we can actually apply science to figure out a whole lot, you know, what we can about those things um, right. with science. Science can only tell you what science can tell you. And yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I should also say quickly, because I haven't said already, you're a psychiatry professor at Johns Hopkins at their Psychedelic Research Institute. Um, yeah, so, you, so you you and your team, you've done these incredible studies on, on psilocybin therapy, especially that I've looked at. Um, is there anything else that's major in your bio? So I'm a, you know, I'm a psychologist. So just, uh, you know, uh, in, in the psychiatry department, so that can, you know, understandable confusion that can sow in some people. I'm okay. a proud psychologist rather than a psychiatrist. Um, but yeah, in, in the psychiatry and behavioral sciences department at Johns Hopkins. And so I've, I've been doing research, um, with psychedelics. Uh, before the public knew about it, um, at Hopkins, you know, starting 18 years ago, over 18 years ago now, um, unbelievably, um, right after I finished my PhD, I, I went to Hopkins and, and, uh, start, started research with this stuff. So yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it been, had my hands in all kinds of, you know, clinical and scientific, you know, studies at Hopkins over the years and, mm. Great. And like I, I studied kind of just for backdrop. I also study drugs more and more like focus on psychedelics, but I study drugs broadly, drugs and behavior. Like I've studied a lot about addiction, including in the area called behavioral economics, applying the principles of, of economics to understanding human behavior, you know, outside of just, you know, the behavior with money, but like how, how do people make, for example, you know, People get loaded up on like stimulants like coke and meth. They tend to have crazy sex, including risky sex. I've done a, I've had a lot of NIH funding from the federal government in the U.S. to study things like that. Like how do people make, the, how do they evaluate the future? How do like drugs on board like cocaine or alcohol um, affect decision making and, and for those things? What, what, um, I've done a lot of work kind of understanding the role of nicotine and smoking, how people, respond under different economic conditions are they willing to work to get cigarette puffs how does nicotine content affect that how does you know labeling and things like that affect that so i've kind of like been all over i i I, one of my favorite quotes is uh some uh you know great influences some heroes of mine not from the scientific world but uh, from the comedy world uh so I'll, i'll 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 quote uh officer officer stadenko from a chichin chong um, uh, I study paraphrasing. I say uppers, downers, and all arounders. <laughs> and so the, the, <laughs> the psychedelics are the all arounders, you know, I think we mm. kind of know what fits in the other categories, the, mm. the cocaine, the meth, you know, and yep. the down yeah, benzos yeah. and the alcohol and whatnot. So I, 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 I'm hooked on drug research. <laughs> that's where it's important. Um, but yeah. And, and that's psychedelics maybe, good, maybe that's not a good part of that. Way. Hooked on What's drug that? research. Is it hooked on drug yeah. research? That's very funny. <laughs> yeah, I got I got hooked when I was in grad school. Like, yeah, that my developing brain was just yeah, 
susceptible to it. Yeah. <laughs> the research. That is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't talk about the other stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, also, we kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I, I feel like we should just hammer this point right away. And I, I hope and I expect we agree on this that what we know about psychedelics scientifically is very minimal at this point. And we kind of don't know anything at all in some sense. Like these things are very mysterious, powerful, subjective, um, and our, our limitations on these things um, are still um, like, like they couldn't be more obvious. And there's, again, there's so much variability with these things. So would, would you kind of agree with this idea that we're still in the infancy of psychedelic research and there's just so much that we know, like we've barely kind of oh, scratched yeah. that we've barely scratched the surface. Whereas say with um, uh, nutrition science or physics or biology, right. you know, human biology, we know so much, even though in those areas we're still learning so much. Right. right? But with psychedelics oh, I, specifically, yeah. would you agree that our understanding is kind of still microscopic. It's still very limited in what we actually know. Oh yeah, totally. In fact, I, uh, I'll, I'll be playful, go even further. You know, we're not only are we in our infancy, like that sperm's barely cracked that egg yet. <laughs> I mean, we are way earlier in development. You know, it's been like, maybe that was like, you know, <laughs> the sperm cracking the egg might've been in the, like the fifties, you know, I guess the forties, uh, but yeah, I don't know. We're like, uh, we're a little bit past that. Like we're, we're a few weeks into development in utero here. Um, <laughs> it, it's like, yeah. And, and I should say like, I, we're totally on the same page. Like I feel like a critical thing is that we, uh, we keep this in mind for science, like, you know, in general and not just science, but our, just our, our knowledge of the world in general. However, it's come up you know, however we come upon it. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm a big Terrence McKenna fan and he would, uh, you know, he'd talk about, Oh, he, and he certainly probably quoted someone else and I'm not recalling who, but like he would say things like, well, you know, as the, as a, as the sphere of light grows, you know, representing our state of knowledge. So, so do, so does grow the surface area of that sphere, which is in contact with the dark. So as our knowledge grows, the, the the mystery grows. It doesn't decrease because that that interface between that bubble, that growing growing sphere of light uh, of our knowledge, only increases the boundaries with the with the darkness. You know that surface area gets larger. So and and another again uh, attributed to you know Terrence McKenna. He, he often remind us that. You know, humanity has always, uh, you know, thought we're basic. We we basically figured out ninety nine percent of it, and we're just working on that last one percent. I mean, that's what we thought a thousand years ago. That's what we thought, you know, five hundred years years ago. That's what we thought a hundred years ago. It's definitely what we think now. And yeah, we're not even on whatever anywhere close to one percent. Like, you know, it, it would be good to keep that in mind. Yeah, all the time with everything, and it's hard. It's like habituation is the simplest form of learning. All that animals engage. It's basically you become 
you know, de- decreased responsiveness, responsiveness to the stimuli in the environment. In other words, like, yeah, we can't attend to everything. We ignore the stuff we need to ignore. Oh, yeah, we're just like creatures in a, in a world that are walking around with other creatures and doing like, why the hell is all of this happening? I mean, that's like the, the number one question. Why is there even, why does anything exist? <laughs> you know, and you can kind of become numb to that. Like, whatever, there's no hope in answering them and just ignore it. But, you know, no matter what, um, how much you figure out, like you haven't figured out that thing. Like, <laughs> like the biggest question of all, I mean, I mean, again, Terrence McKenna would speak to this, like, the, you know, it's like science says, oh, give us one miracle and we'll explain everything else. And it's like, well, okay, well, the one miracle is like, you know, the Big Bang. We, yeah, mm. the entire universe sprang forth out of nothing for no reason, <laughs> you know, you know, and yeah, it just everything we know came out of nothing for no reason. You grant us that. And, and it's actually the case limit. It is the definition of the most improbable inexplicable thing <laughs> you could possibly imagine and that's the one gr- miracle we, we ask for and you give us that and we'll we can pretend it's all we're just mopping up the rest you know so you know we yep. know nothing you know at, at the same time that shouldn't be an excuse to be like epistemologically like naive and just like be a sucker to any theory and like you know to any yep. swindler and and like, yeah, we yep. do know that at least within our realm of of yeah, experience and reality, there are things that are metaphysically, we could argue whether there's ultimately truths, but they're close enough to truths for us to deal with. You know, you, you jump in front of that bus, you're going to be dead, or at least it's by all accounts, like, yeah. you know, like that bus is going to hit you. So, you know, there's a, we, we, yeah, we need to be empirically based, uh, but yeah. We also need to be, have a humility epistemologically. And yeah, I mean, that term, keep throwing it around, just means how epistemology is how, how we understand and acquire knowledge itself, how we even hold the nature of knowledge. How do you know things? What is the basis of, of that knowledge in the world? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was going to say with psychedelics, there are certain empirical things we know. I mean, just, just one example, like just on the top of my head. Uh, five grams of mushrooms. If you take that, there's a strong chance you'll have a mystical experience, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's and that's and it's almost guaranteed. Even if that's a, a decent chance, not guaranteed. Pretty guaranteed, you're not going to feel normal. Like we can say that, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, that's, and that's and that's where things like meditation, yoga, and other kind of transcendental spiritual practices you might say which are also based in science and have a strong scientific ground um that's where they're not as reliable as psychedelics are if you want to compare it with something like meditation and yoga it's like you can't right. reliably predict that somebody doing transcendental meditation or kundalini yoga or um some kind of mystical christian prayer is going to have a mystical experience whereas with mushrooms you can and and not to say not to say one is better than the other but but just to kind of put that out there that when oh, we're talking when we're talking about psilocybin you're you know four five six grams almost guaranteed you're going to have something like a mystical experience right and that uh and i want to get into the research here too because i know we have just uh, under an hour and there's a lot to talk about 
but let, let's so let's get into some of the research. Um, I should just just quickly say, like you know, as somebody who's very scientific myself and very uh, rationality oriented, you know, I I sort of went into the psychedelic field um, about a year ago, around this time, I think, and I was kind of looking for solutions, looking for answers to various psychological issues that I was experiencing. And I was looking at different modalities, different therapies, counseling, meditation, uh, internal family systems, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, all within the counseling realm. Um, but I, I stumbled upon the psychedelic stuff through Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, and Joe Rogan, of course. And, you know, they, they all talked about it in a, a very approving way. But then I started looking into the research and I was just stunned by the results over and over again. I'm like, th- th- this, you know, being a, a, mi- a miracle cure, let's say, would be somewhat hyperbolic. But this is the closest thing to a miracle cure that I've seen in terms of, let's say, depression, smoking addiction or anxiety or PTSD, you know, when it comes to MDMA. This is the closest thing that I can that I've found to a miracle cure when it comes to these things. And that that's incredibly powerful. And that's what's prompted my my research and my writing and my uh, clinical uh, therapeutic experiences um, in this area. So so let's kind of um, let, let me just briefly outline some of these results and then we can talk about it um, for people who don't know. Uh, MAPS has done the uh, amazing studies on MDMA-assisted therapy. And last May, they they published their findings in Nature Medicine. And their study found uh, about two-thirds of participants fully recovered from PTSD. And about 90% of participants experienced a significant reduction in their PTSD symptoms. And that was just from, I believe, two or three sessions of MDMA assisted um therapy that was uh, uh so, sorry two or three sessions of mdma i think it was three and that yeah that three, three and then, mm-hmm. yes three and then reinforced with uh, trauma focused therapy afterwards whereas crucially where kind right. of the work happens right you're processing the things that you've experienced and similarly with psilocybin 2020 study which uh, you were a part of um and that was for depression uh, and, and it was it was a smaller study. It was about twenty four people, um, but sixty seven percent of participants showed more than fifty percent reduction in depression symptoms at the one week mark, and seventy one percent at the four week follow up. Um, and four weeks afterwards, uh, after the study, uh, more than half, just over half of participants were considered in remission, meaning they no longer qualified as being depressed. I'm just looking at the study findings right now as well. So I look at stuff like that, and we're going to talk about the smoking uh, cessation studies as well. Um, But I I look at stuff like that, and it's like, is there any parallel to those findings for PTSD or for for psilocybin specifically for, for depression or for smoking addiction? Like, is there anything that even comes in the, the ballpark range of what psilocybin-assisted therapy and MDMA-assisted therapy have shown in the literature? Um, no, I would say there's nothing close. Now, we are 
you know, where it's it's a the research is in progress. You know, one phase three study for MDMA has been done. They're working on more research, you know, and this is going to be critical for approval. But but yeah, yeah. I mean, so and and I should I should state that in the history of just the science of of it's almost like the science of science, the science of clinical research. There's a very clear trend that new therapies that the so-called effect size does get smaller over time. And and that that makes sense because, you know, the people that kind of pioneered something are more likely to either, you know, believe in it more or just to do it better or to, you know, any number of like obvious reasons what one might expect that, you know, things get, you know, kind of disseminated. And then you have maybe folks that aren't, you know, like good therapists, but not great therapists, this type of thing. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it, I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, I'd be surprised if there wasn't some of this, you know, you know, some decrease in efficacy over time. You know, however, the, the backdrop is that these results are so large. These improvements are so large that even if we saw half of what we're seeing now, it would still be phenomenal and worthy of approval and better than uh virtually anything out there i mean in the ptsd realm yeah there's the closest thing would be you know the the therapies by themselves the very extensive therapies such as prolonged uh, exposure therapy cognitive processing therapy emdr these are very um cognitive based that they're all based on the idea that you need to process the memory discuss it when it's in a pliable state, in other words, when you and we know this from the nature of human memory, when you bring up, you know, a fearful memory or any type of memory for that matter, that the very act of remembering it and contemplating it is changing it. And then what you, you store again is not an identical photocopy that you originally pulled out. It's actually a modified version. And so the whole idea is that that's going on in these talk therapies that take the problem is. The, the way to get better is talking about the very thing that is, is you're terrified of. <laughs> so as you can imagine, the dropout rate is astronomically high. It, and, and that's the, the main reason why these things don't work for people. If you get people to actually go through them week upon week after week after week, you do see some very real improvement that, that looks much better than what you see with SSRIs. Nonetheless, it's like the, the, you know, few people are seeing that, that, that those, um, those types of effects, because you know, again, it's like you know, that's the nature of the disorder. You're terrified. Like, do we mm. just want you to talk a lot about this thing that is absolutely the worst thing in your life again and again and again and again and again and again. Mm. And, and so the idea is that MDMA is essentially the same thing, but on rocket boosters in this kind of safe context that the drug creates, where one can. And there's different ideas for evidence that suggests why this might be happening biologically. The amygdala is tamped down. There's an oxytocin response. But the result is, however, you know, those mechanisms work out, you know, one is able to, you know, discuss the same experience without sort of the self-hatred, without the hair trigger, anxiety, panic attack reaction, without you know, all of these layers of, of judgment and self-judgment. And so, and, and, and that's such a clear experience that that's what sticks. And then when you remember it the next day, it's like, oh, you actually, you remember it that way, not the way you had for the last five years, you know, for like this kind of catastrophic response. So that's the closest stuff that works. 
but it doesn't work for most people because it's the hardest thing in the world. And in fact, the, when it does work, those therapies work by essentially the same mechanism. This is the specu- speculation, but educated speculation. And this is the way, you know, all of the leaders in this field are, you know, that I'm aware of are thinking about this. That's what's happening with MDMA therapy. People, it, it's basically prolonged exposure therapy on rocket boosters. Like you're actually able to get in just a few sessions, the mileage that it would have taken, you know, you go into mm. something like a 15 week program of constantly, you know, spending an hour or two talking about your, you know, these things that are, are, you know, uh, so terrifying. So mm. that's the closest thing. And so it's, it looks much better than that. Cause I think of it this way. It's like, once you swallow that pill, it's like you're, you're locked into the roller coaster, you know, you're going up that hill <laughs> And even yeah. you're just thinking, oh shit, what did I do? Like, oh no, 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 give me that. Like, no, it's too late, dude. <laughs> you know? Right. Hold your hand during it, but it's happening, you know? And, yep. and that's, and then you get that response where it's like, especially with MDMA, where the chances of a bad trip are less likely. And, 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 you know, it's this very helpful kind of state that people end up finding themselves. In. So for the other things for depression, yes, the closest yeah. I would yeah. say is ketamine. The problem there is it only lasts a week on average, you know, and so we're seeing results across the field that it's lasting months with for psilocybin. For psilocybin, yeah. yeah I so, again, it's something I, I kind of similar, but it looks a lot better so far. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to talk about that now. Like when I again, when I look at the, the study that your team did, two thirds of participants showed more than 50% reduction in depression symptoms. Um, and after four weeks, more than half, 54% of participants no longer qualified as being clinically depressed. Right. Like, like that is astounding. Like that blows my mind. I know so right. many people yeah. in my life who are depressed, by the way, who have uh, so many different issues, um, friends, family members, grandparents, uh, et cetera. And and they've tried so many different things: meditation, SSRIs, counseling, fucking going to church, going to the temple, doing this, mm-hmm. working out, nutrition, like everything, you know. And they're so stuck. And I look at this, and I'm like, like, like you should do this. This is incredible. So, so can we? <laughs> so let, let's talk about that. And similarly to how you were talking about MDMA, um, comparing this to um, ordinary uh, psychotherapy or SSRIs or meditation or other things um similarly is it true that for psilocybin there's nothing in the ballpark in terms of efficacy yeah i mean that's that's the way it looks i do want to put in the the you know like a the backdrop is that in when we think about the word miracle like uh hesitancy of using that word is uh is that nothing works for everybody right and I mean, you, yes. you set yourself in those numbers as good as they are, you know, like what, you know, like 90 percent in the MDMA, so 90 percent had some improvement at all. You know, that's 10 percent didn't see any improvement, you know, like that really. And having been through, you know, you know, been a guide and, and you know, even more so supervised these, you know, the guiding of these sessions for hundreds of people, you know, those are heartbreaking. And you it really is a you know, as a clinician, as just a, a decent person, it's really, it's very, it becomes very salient to you that you really have to let people know that like, you should not really don't look at this as your only option left. 
because like nothing works for everyone. And that's, that's very tough. I mean, it's the same thing that, you know, people deal with the cross medicine and, you know, it's like, you know, like the, the cancer treatment that works for most people that doesn't work for you. It's like, these are really tough, you know, situations to be in. And then you hear about these incredibly high rates. And then if you're one that still loses the lottery, you know, it doesn't work for you. That just can create this extra layer of like, oh, I am the worst of the worst. And nothing that proves that nothing can ever work for me. Of course, that's not true at all. It may have been, it, we know with all these disorders that staying engaged with treatment, and it's not even like a, 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 a apparently unsuccessful attempt. It's not like that was not helpful. It may be that that sets you up for next time that you're going to be even, I mean, we know that very solidly for like smoking and addiction addictions, but mm. it's true for all of these disorders. That, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. It's common sense. Like you stay engaged in treatment, you know, you, and, and those things you learned last time, even if you felt that it was ultimately a failure, you, um, you know, you don't know what positive, how, how that, that's still going to serve as wind in your sail going forward. You might be even more likely to be, um, uh, successful on the, on the following a- a- attempt. So everyone should, you know, people, it, it, it's a miracle when it does work. And sometimes that's very dramatic. Now that's true for other things. I mean, God, when someone's dealing with suicidality, if they, if the SSRI, you know, hey, even if it's less likely, it does work for some people, you know, like the SSRI saves their life. That's, that's a goddamn miracle, right? Like that's a human being that was saved. And like, so I, I tend to think of miracles as like at an individual level. It's astonishingly, (laughs) it's astonishing how frequently you see miracles for individuals with psilocybin, you know, and by miracle, yes. obviously, I just mean like a really, really transformative big effect. That, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's why I think about it. It's, it is amazing though. Like, sorry, yeah, let, me, let me just interject you there. Yeah. I, I, we have just over half an hour. And I want to kind of focus you and focus this conversation because there's so many questions I have about your research. Yeah. So, so, so let, let's talk about the psilocybin uh, depression study. Um, this is kind of a broad question, but like, like what is exactly like what is happening? Why are these results so astounding and dramatic? What's like what are these people experiencing that is so profound that uh, leads to these uh, astounding results? These astounding uh, reductions in uh, depression symptoms. Mm-hmm. I really think it's it's uh, although sometimes you do you do see things in the session itself like these insightful experiences where people have these different perspectives where they draw lessons. That's definitely true in all of these disorders. There's also cases where, you know, the, the session was a little less, you know, coming out of the session itself, it's not clear, like, oh, was this kind of a dud? Like, um, you didn't look like the full mystical experience and the person felt one with the universe, like, you know, and so it's a little more, you know, iffy and, 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 but then it looks like the person feels like they, it really helped them. And, and, and the, what I think is going on is that, um, with or without the kind of the alter, you know, the, the insightful, um, you know, change in perceptive taking during the, the, the session itself that, you know, that period afterwards, it's been called the afterglow and, 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 you know, rat research suggests that there's unfolding neuroplasticity, like, the brain is more readily able to, you know, connect different neurons together, for example, um, to form um, new synapses. 
it may be that you have just this greater mental flexibility. And we know this on the psychological level. Um, th- there's greater mental flexibility after one takes the, dr- the, the drug after the session. And so it may be during that period, like all of these kind of lessons, like not only from the Soul 7 session, but from life itself, these things that you told yourself. But, you know, it's easy to then, like it's easier said than done to say, oh, this, like this traumatic experience wasn't your fault or this, this, uh, you know, you're not a completely damaged person for someone who's depressed, it's, you know, but there's not that openness for, to really sit with that. And in the afterglow, this sort of, you know, by metaphor, like a reset of the nervous system where one is less likely to automatically fall into their previous rigid thoughts, like, you know, to, oh, I'm just a smoker or I can't quit or I'm, I'm just depressed. I'm in a damaged case, you know. Like they're able to take a different perspective. Oh, like actually, no, I can think this way about it. And and they start to actually do things differently in their daily life. And some of those examples you said before, a lot of times you see this. It's like, oh, the person decides like, oh, I need to exercise more. I need to eat better. I need to start taking care of myself. I need to talk to my kids more, blah, blah, whatever it is for that person. And so it's this feed forward thing because it's the psychological lessons that are learned and this increased openness. And, and uh, this increased agency afterwards for someone to jump on those things. And so that's my best explanation for what's really happening. Mm. And do you think there's an element of kind of transcending yourself, like being pulled so far out of yourself for some period of time um, in, in some sense of you're so um, out of your rigid thought, your rigid, obsessive, fixed thought patterns you you know you're kind of moving away from that and you're exploring parts of your unconscious or um, different addictions you have and that once you come back to, to your sober state you you realize how like perverse or or stupid or painful mm-hmm. or depressing that state is like that temporary few hours of being away from just waking up every day and feeling like a depressed piece of shit who has a horrible life, like being away from that default uh, setting you have, right? When you wake up and you feel like, you you know, that you have the worst life in the world or you're depressed, you're lonely, your life is bad, et cetera. When you're away from that narrative, when that narrative just breaks and it breaks so profoundly and so dramatically and in such a, not in an escapist, like drinking yourself till you're numb way, but in a in a way where you're truly actually engaging with some of those parts of yourself, that when you then return back into sobriety, you look at yourself and you, and this is based off of what many people have told me and kind of my experience with uh, the MDMA as well, is like you return back to your normal setting and you kind of think like, I've really been doing this wrong. I've been viewing myself yeah. in a totally wrong, misleading, and uh, uh, dangerous kind of way, you know, waking up every morning and, and having these negative thought patterns. Um, so you're able to return to your normal state and have um, a radically different perspective about yourself and about others. Is Does that kind of um, summarize or, or uh, illustrate kind of what's what might be happening in certain cases? Oh, yeah, I think that's, yeah, consistent, uh, 
with what I was describing and, and in a lot of cases, it, yeah, it looks like that, you know, it's, uh, I think there's the, the clarity. I, I think one of the reasons why there's a sticking value is because often times it, 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 it the experience actually is very convincing and, and I, I think convinces the person that it is a ground truth. In other words, that like when people are done with the psychedelic session, when it's done well, they don't typically tell themselves, oh, those were just, oh, wow, I really thought about myself in a different way. And I, I was, you know, forgiving myself or whatever. And, 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 oh, wow, that was some crazy, crazy drug effect. And wow, now I'm back to normal. It's like when it works, it, 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 people talk about it like a, a, um, a truth that's been a revealed truth. Like it was, it was so um, self-validating, you know, the, you know, like say these things that might sound simple, like you really can be a non-smoker if you just decide, you know, it's like they really kind of can get that at a, at a very deep level. And, and, and I think they can hold on to that. Now there's also a danger there because like, there's also the side that we don't see as much clinical research because of the screen and, and, uh, and, and preparation and, and oversight, et cetera. But you see all kinds of delusional behavior with uh, psychedelics, too, and, and belief systems. I mean, there's also people that – and I think this is a product of that flexibility. I mean, you can come out, um, you know, raving about just absurd things, you know. I mean, uh, you know, lizard people running the world. I mean, there's only, there's plenty of examples of people, you know, you know, getting into strange, like, extreme – you know, what sounds to most people like delusional, you know, thinking, and it seems pretty clear that the psychedelics have fueled that. Um, so I'm not saying that psychedelics like reveal ground and, truth all the also, time. And also, right. one thing to add too, like, not saying this is good or bad, and my personal bias would lean towards this being somewhat of a good thing. <laughs> but I mean, the people who have these experiences who might be more uh, atheistic or kind of, uh, conventionally religious who have these experiences and feel like they've encountered God or the divine or something, something in the universe that's bigger than themselves. And so they, they give it a, an explicit kind of spiritual valence to it. That that's very common from what I can, from what I, what I can see, especially with DMT, but with psilocybin as well. Yeah. And I think we we have a lot more work to kind of figure out really what's going on there. And I mean, we got started to get into very philosophical territory, like to what degree people's belief have people's like real belief system, you know, sort of change. And is it, you know, uh, yeah. And how frequent is that? Um, we, we do have a lot more. I, I, I found myself kind of on the side of just of, of, of uh i mean i wrote an article in scientific american kind of pushing back on some you know concern an article that kind of expressed concerns that psychedelics can change people's political beliefs and religious beliefs and i'm like look we don't know that that's not the case in all cases but the evidence doesn't suggest that there's any broad scale changes like this you know that it's certainly not systematic and and i don't know like what you might get is like do are you know um for most people, are they more likely to, I don't know, like for concrete, like to, to believe in God or not? I think that's still an open 
clearly there are some people that say that psychedelics push in that direction, but we're also ignoring the perhaps 99.9% plus people who took psychedelics and it was like, yeah, yeah, they giggled with their friends in college and that was pretty much it, you know? Um, and, and, and there's plenty of people that have had very strong psychedelic experience and very meaningful experience that say, no, they're still, they're not, you know, they're, 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 they're still, a, they consider themselves an atheist or is there more of a shift from hard atheism to, you know, um, being a, an agnostic I, that's been speculated. I don't know that we have any great data. It does seem like some shift in that dimension. I mean, people, for some people, they become more interested in things typically called spiritual. Other people, not so much. And I, I do wonder how much that's part of the, of the therapeutic package. Like it could come maybe with or without that type of shift. Um, and, and then what, again, Nate, there's questions about the nature of that shift. So we have a lot to figure out there, I think. Yeah, and, and one just one more point on that. There's one survey I was reading that was featured in Vice magazine. I don't know if this was your team at Johns Hopkins. It was a survey of, I believe it was DMT, atheists who had done DMT, uh, something like 60, 70, 75% of them no longer identified with the term atheist after the experiences. Does that ring a bell with you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I mean, uh, that was, uh, yeah, my work with colleagues. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course yeah, so important things to remember there are that these were people that answered an ad saying, have you had an experience of God on DMT? So this is not a random sample and this is not even a random sample of people who have used DMT or even a random sample of he had a high, you know, strong effect on DMT. This is people that answered, you know, and I, I, don't, I tried very hard in that work to make sure we had that framing there. And, and frankly, okay. I think in, in the context of that, I, I was pushing back on, on, on authors, other authors on trying to overstate things and over, you know, I, I just, in a survey like that, you had to be pretty constrained. Like, you know, and I raised, I, I, I made sure that we had to put it in the paper in that case of there was a lot of sort of, Oh, this is like, wow, how extraordinary that, you know, you're changing people's, um, that, that, that so many, I forget the exact percentage. Like a lot of these people now said they, they thought these were disincarnated entities. This might've been another, we've done a couple surveys, one about God experiences, one on entity encounters, but, um, so I might be conflating the, t the two, but very similar issues with both. But, but, you know, so many percentage of, uh, of, of these participants now believed in the existence of these disincarnated entities. And like, you know, I, is that a good thing? I'm sure for a lot of people it's, you know, hasn't caused any problems. Maybe it's even functionally, you know, bettered their life perhaps. Uh, you know, they think they have a guardian angel over them. So, you know, for other enough people answer that though, I guarantee you some are going to look, yeah, they're going to look, look more in the category of schizophrenia, like, and it's not good for, I mean, mm. and all of this, you know, divorced from any knowledge of whether we, there really is a metaphysical reality to it or not. Um, you know, whether there is or, or, or not, like for at least certain people that can really cause a lot of problems. Um, and, and so anyway, I mean, I, I am in this area kind of like, I find myself, you know, wanting to kind of constrain some of the, you know, um, 
the story that kind of emerges around it. Like we don't really quite know yet how these things interact with people's belief, how common that is that, mm. you know, and, you know, and, and we, we didn't, that wasn't the type of survey to, you know, it wasn't like we surveyed a bunch of people that did DMT and like we, we, we got a specific type of person that had a specific type of experience, which is fine as long as you're very clear about what you did. You know what I mean? Mm. So, yeah, and, and the stat is something like 70, 75%, right? If you, I don't know if you can remember, but for atheists who no longer identified with the term atheist anymore after their first DMT trips, like that's right, still that might very, be, yeah, it was, I, I, I recall, it was, yeah, it was an astonishingly high, yeah, number. Um, but, at the, but at the same time, you're saying you attracted, like there's a certain kind of bias within the group of people you surveyed them because you said, um, because you advertised it as people who've had a God experience. Well, yeah. And, 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 and this, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it's, it would be very easy. We don't know, but it would be very easy to speculate that. Yeah. If you just, if you interviewed anyone who did EDMT and about the nature of their experience, that the, the number of people that, you know, they said it's now moved them from atheism to act, being agnostic or some other movement along that continuum, that that would be different. And, and, and if anything smaller, you know, then like when you went to, I mean, when you have people that said they thought they encountered God or it seemed like they encountered God, it's like, obviously you're going to get a greater percentage of those people saying things like they're no longer an atheist. Right. Um, it's the nature of what we were looking for. Um, hmm. I mean, there's certain, surveys like this and i've done a bunch of in addiction like to say like you know have you have you quit or reduced smoking or you know, quit or reduced drinking cocaine cannabis methamphetamine opioids i've run surveys and published surveys and all of this with psychedelics um to, to describe the stories basically to say when people say they did take you know mushrooms just to party which is the typical thing or exploration you know they weren't using it for medical therapeutic intent and then all of a sudden, you know, lo and behold, they're like, my God, I've got to stop smoking or stop drinking or stop using so much cocaine. Um, it's it, 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 like it's it's amazing that that ever happens. And and, and when doing a, a survey like that, the question is kind of what's the landscape when people say this does happen? What does it look like? What are the patterns? You can't take a survey like that and say, well, what are the odds that taking psilocybin is going to make you you know just a party is going to make you quit smoking like we didn't that wasn't the type of survey we did it's going to be a much lower percentage like most people who are smokers that take psilocybin don't quit you know smoking and so for example right now i'm doing some surveys with depression and ptsd with psychedelics where the backdrop is have you tried one of these psychedelics to treat um you know ptsd depression anxiety and if people are interested they can you know there's an advertisement on our 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 center uh, website for that survey. But, you know, from that, I'm hoping to get more of a, you know, a distribution where you can actually look at the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, here goes. Sony percentage said it helped them. And Sony percentage said it actually made them worse. And, and here's these other people that said, eh, meh, it didn't do anything, you know? Um, so that's kind of, it's still not a clinical trial, but it's, it cast its net, its net in a different way to be able to at least, address that question with limitations whereas if you just you know there's certain you know like if you just say well tell me your story if you quit smoking because of smoke smoking because of uh, psilocybin 
you can't use that those data to then inform the you know how likely it is you're going to quit smoking with psilocybin because you only looked at the success stories, right? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, and also in those surveys, um, I don't know if you're looking for people who've done it in a therapeutic context because because that's that makes a massive difference for people who've just done psilocybin, like having depression and having just done psilocybin by themselves or with friends versus having done it with a guide and with a counselor to integrate their lessons afterwards. Like that seems to be a massive difference. I don't know if the, those surveys would, uh, would actually factor in. Right. Yeah. So we, we, we do ask that in the surveys. And as you would imagine, the vast majority of people have, you know, they were doing it like on their own. And yeah. so, and we have seen like, you know, not surprisingly that, in surveys and they say that you know someone with them you know they tend to have better you know like a, a safer you know experience and less likely to have long-term negative effects and, and so again not surprising but yeah we we, we see glimpses of that for sure mm. because yeah the, the studies with psilocybin and mdma it's it's not showing the efficacy of just doing like mushrooms or mdma for treating depression or PTSD. It's for psilocybin assisted therapy, right? MDMA assisted therapy. Yeah. So it's, it's therapy that you do afterwards with somebody who's a professional in the field to help integrate those lessons. And that's where something like I heard a figure once that's where 70%, I don't know if that's an actual scientific number or if it's just like a an estimate, just kind of a rough idea, like 70% of the actual work comes afterwards, right? Like how do you then change your life after the experience. Like the experience is uh, transient. It's just a few hours, right? It's how do you actually improve your moment to moment existence with your family, with your kids, with work, etc. So the, right. the, the the therapy and the integration is, is crucial. It's not just the trips themselves. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And yeah, that's 70, and that that's you know kind of just a guess. There's no like real number that that you know way yeah. to measure that. But yeah, like it, my gut tells me it's like yeah, it's something like that. You know, most of the you know you wouldn't expect it to be nearly as therapeutic. It's amazing that it's ever therapeutic. That's why I look at it without that. Like when someone's just using you know you know mushrooms to to, to have fun, and then they're like, holy cow, I need to stop drinking, and then they tell you that story like you know a few years after the fact and they say they haven't drank since you're like, what the, like it's surprising that ever happens. Even if in, you know, 90%, 95%, 99% of the times, like, you know, when an, an alcoholic takes mushrooms, even if they don't quit, because, you know, without all that, you know, everything pushing it in the therapeutic direction, it's kind of amazing that it ever works, you know, spontaneously like that. Yeah. And you do hear those stories as well. Those stories are not. Yeah. Totally sure. And those are very, astonishing yeah i mean and i I view that as it speaks to like okay well if you see it there with any frequency then how much more you know promising is it when we could take that kernel of effect and then leverage it like both maximizing the safety in other words making even more likely to work and doing things to minimize the risks like yeah you know less likely they're gonna you know do something where they might get hurt for example or you have a heart attack or something like this that you know, can occasionally, it does occasionally happen, um, you know, but these things are pretty easily avoided with kind of basic medical screening and this type of thing. Mm-hmm. 
And with your uh, depression study, it was three sessions of psilocybin. And can you just uh, outline again for me? Um, I'm forgetting right now what the time frame was for this, for the three sessions and the frequency of therapy in between the three sessions before you uh, looked at the, the results for the study. So that was, uh, let's see, two sessions in depression, I think four weeks apart. So, Oh, it was just two. It wasn't three. Yeah. It was in the depression. Yeah. Two. Um, in in our first smoking study, we had three sessions and in the current one, we actually whittled it down to one session, even though in our, in our, in some future work, we're going to go up to two sessions and kind of like, you know, there's no really good answer. I mean, there's never been a single study that says, Oh, do you get better? results with two sessions or three sessions or one session versus two sessions. So it, it does seem like a, you know, if you do one session and like there's a chance that that person would have had a meaningful experience on their second session, but there is some kind of random chance. And sometimes you kind of get a dud session and what, you know, like who knows why, but then if you did another session two weeks later, like, it might be the most ex- meaningful experience in their life, you know, so there is value in just kind of having when you're treating these disorders to have a few sessions to kind of increase your chance. I call it the slot machine effect. It's like, Hey, even if it's a decent gamble on any one session, it's still a gamble, you know, it's not guaranteed. So you're just like, you're stacking your odds up by having multiple sessions, but we're still figuring right. out how many is needed, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think because we only have about 15 minutes, maybe we'll just continue talking about the depression study, if you don't mind, and we can talk about mm-hmm. the smoking addiction stuff next time you're here, sure. um, maybe next mm-hmm. month at some point. So uh, two sessions of psilocybin, and you said four weeks apart, and how frequent was the therapy in that study? Um, It was, uh, oh gosh, Roughly I speaking. mean, there's some flexibility surrounding surrounding it. It was a number of uh, uh, I mean, it was several weeks of, you know, both in terms of preparation and in the weeks. I mean, there was, gosh, what did it go out to? Was it eight or 10, uh, weeks? There was a number of like, you know, weekly meetings afterwards. I, I mean, I was a guide in some of the sessions, so I, it's just been, it's been years, <laughs> but, okay. um, yep. yeah, yeah, it was definitely embedded into a larger, you know, kind of sustained, um, you know, program of like weekly contact where they're and, sort of just supportive. And that, in that case, it was like supportive there. Basically just we we're asking them to reflect on the session and there to kind of provide supportive, um, uh, reflective listening, this type of thing, no kind of nominal, you know, CBT or, you know, uh, a specific form of therapy. Oh, okay. There was no trauma for, or, well, we're talking about depression, so it's not necessarily that there's any trauma, but right. there was no specific modality of psychotherapy you used? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, it's so what you would just call supportive therapy, I mean, which is kind of a generic name for just like, yeah, like you're using the basic, you know, kind of the basic bread and butter of like, you know, reflective listening, and, you know, empathy and all of this type of thing, strong rapport building. Um, mm. But yeah yeah so this was going on kind of every week and so how long are we roughly talking about before you actually uh, looked at the before you calculated the findings of the study was it like a few months of therapy um 
Oh, no, no, more in the, in the order of like, uh, well, I guess, you know, like, like two months, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Something like that, eight, ten weeks. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So two months and in there you have a four week interval with two sessions of psilocybin, um, a guided psilocybin, two guided psilocybin sessions. And then uh, around all of that, you have weekly therapy going on. Yeah. And, yeah. And you find these incredible results. And do you want to maybe talk a little bit about this follow-up that I was just looking at that came out in February that showed that these uh, effects were consistent for up to a year for most patients? Um, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the, the yeah, the top-line description for sure. Yeah, and, and, and uh, actually consistent with some previous work in the, you know, the cancer, uh, depression, and anxiety work, um, the, the group at New York University published a paper that was over four years after that work and showed amongst the people they looked at that the effects were largely sustained. So, yeah, that's what it, you know, looked like in our hands with, you know, major depressive disorder, which... Yeah, and it begs the you know like what's different? Is there you know are there differences in the brain a year later? And like what has like you know what's kind of led to those? Yeah, how in the world do you get you know a change in symptoms that far down the road? And I think the answer to that is that it's it's because of these psychotherapeutic. What I was saying earlier about people actually start changing the way that they live their lives, and that becomes the more sustained effect. So it's an indirect effect. It's one where it's really that kind of that reestablishing the new normal in their everyday, the way they're thinking about themselves and the way they're behaving is 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 probably what cements that long term improvement. Because obviously mm. the drug like out of the system like, way early on. Yeah. And you were talking a bit about MDMA earlier, about the nuances of that therapy of you're, you get to actually experience the terrifying things that are still haunting you, but you're doing it with much less fear and much less anxiety. That seems to be mm-hmm. a, a powerful and a plausible explanation for what we think is going on there. Um, similarly with depression and psilocybin, do we have a rough idea of what exactly is going on in these uh, experiences? I, I know I kind of asked you that a bit earlier, but I mean, like when it comes to depression, we're dealing with people who have these very rigid and obsessive thought patterns about who they are and about how other people are. And so their, their life is very kind of gray, very dark. Um, and it's, it's life is very dull and uh, lifeless and lacking uh, joy, color, beauty, that kind of thing. So what, what would, what do you think is happening in these sessions that is, reinvigorating their lives and bringing more color and joy and jolting them into taking these actions that you were talking about in their, in their families or in their work or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they're, they're, um, they're able to look at their lives through um, kind of through fresh lenses and not kind of look to the, you know, these kind of, it's almost like people realize that, Oh, their um their perception of the world they thought was just ground truth like that was reality they realize oh i'm wearing this funky pair of glasses that like makes everything look gloomy it's like 
oh, I can actually choose. Like, mm. uh, I can look through there. Let me try this other pair. Oh, now things look a little different. Let me try a goofy pair. Oh, they look colorful and wacky. And, <laughs> like, let me try this pair. Now I think I can see things sharply, and but more narrow. Like, I don't know. It's an analogy, but, like, I just yeah. – where they actually – and this is just kind of, like, something that you hope from – in clinical psychology in general, it's, it's a broader perspective taking. It's like, oh yeah, like, and a lot of times people real they could tell you that, but then to realize it and feel it, it's a different thing. Like, oh, I'm actually just this whole. It's not that the world is like cloudy and gl- I mean that's the thing. Like the world is like the ultimate Rorschach test. Like, yeah, you can find all the evidence for that the world is an absolutely horrible, hellish place. Like. There is countless evidence of that. There's also countless evidence that it's like it's the most unspeakable beauty you could imagine if you're open to it. So it's like, I don't know, people, I, I think people, you know, start to learn how to step outside of that perspective. And with that just reset, it's like, oh, like people say they feel like their brain is reset or something. I think it's pointing to this idea that these kind of automatic, like these kind of trigger react, these reactions, like, Oh, if this comes up, I think about myself this way. If this happens, I do this. And, and they just find themselves in this situation where it's like, Oh, I get to decide all kinds of things. I get to decide how I feel. I get to decide like what I do, how I react. And, and even there's just a little wiggle room there, you know what I mean? Like introducing. And then it's, I, yeah, that could make people feel so much um better when they start to go down that that path because like sometimes you just like the worst thing is like just seeing no hope it's like when there's no hope like why do you even bother but if you do see a glimpse even if things kind of close up again it's like no 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 no. i remember like it wasn't just me it wasn't just the drill i remember there was some self-validating thing there that like where the yeah where the world really can seem different so I think it's something like that, you know, this kind of flexibility that the brain has, you know, that the mind has been afforded in the short term. Mm. And uh, similarly, again, I think we talked about this with MDMA, but also with, with depression and with psilocybin, there's no real comparison, any other kind of therapy that's as effective as this. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, with all the, you know, the caveats apply, you know, like we need to follow up. It's not FDA approved yet, but yeah, it, it looks better than anything I've seen for depression so far. And, and yeah, you were I talking about get more mod, you know, like again, like I, I think, you know, you're going to get a range of results and it doesn't always work as well, but it does work astonishingly well for a lot of people. And you were talking about the difficulties um, working with people uh, who have PTSD and with conventional therapies, um, similarly for depression, um, what what is potentially difficult about dealing with that in your mind with conventional therapies? Now that we know what psilocybin is doing, like what's the I'm just distorted distorted perspective taking? You know, I don't know. It, it's always idi- idiosyncratic that people will think. Um, that they've done something to hurt themselves or they're just sort of damaged goods. And, and it just, it's, I don't know. You could be talking to someone who's like a young person who has like 
is being pursued by, you know, potential significant others who's like, you know, has career, has a good, you know, job and career aspects. And it's like all these are like great and they've got friends and you're like, how in the world is this person to, you know, it's, but it's classic. It's the nature of the, the disorder. And, and they just have this perspective that, you know, they're this kind of damage that's, that no one else really sees. And this, I mean, that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's just very difficult to, you know, the person's smart there, but they just are just viewing things from this kind of distorted perspective. Mm. And why do you think conventional therapy, uh, like any kind of psychotherapy counseling, why do you think that is so ineffective at dealing with that? Now, what, considering what we know, with well, they, it, it can therapy. be effective, but, but yeah, you know, a lot of times it's, it's ineffective. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, cause that's just, cause those are deeply ingrained uh, views of the world and they've right. been reinforced over years or even decades. And it's just, it's easier said than done, you know, like yeah, it, so it's just, almost like, Oh, now magically look at the world as if you're a, I don't know, someone that, uh, I don't know, like you, you're, you know, you're a world-class, like pretend you're Michael Jordan and you know what that's like to be Michael Jordan in the world. It's like, ah, what, <laughs> you know, like you just don't have, you know, there's like, like, how do you do that? Easier said than it's like telling a depressed person, imagine, you know, imagine you're like the greatest basketball player of all time. It's like, okay. Mm. I, it's, it's like that. I think, you know, it's like, it's just, it's very yeah. difficult. Like we we're, yeah, it's become reinforced over the years, and it's it's hard to shake yourself out of that. Yeah, and then that I don't think that's hyperbolic about it at all. If anybody's listening to this, like telling a depressed person to, like that, like the the basketball example is very similar to telling a depressed person of you know ex, experience the world like it's filled with joy and wonder and happiness. Like wake up every morning and feel like your life is amazing. Like that, it, it just doesn't work. Like they can't even imagine what that looks like. Right. right. So like, so like just, so these decades of conditioning and reinforcing these patterns of thinking of depression is it's going to be very difficult to cut through that through just talking to a therapist and it, and it would depend on what kind of therapist and how good they are. It seems like CBT cognitive behavioral therapy is kind of superficial in many ways and doesn't get at some of the, the more fundamental or, or holistic ways of, um, addressing some of these deep thought patterns. So it's, it's no wonder that something like psilocybin is really going to jolt somebody into thinking radically differently from their conditioned uh, patterns of behavior and of thinking about themselves and of other people. Right. Yep. I think it, it opens that window that just that uh, yep. moment of opportunity that could be taken advantage of that yeah. kind of crack. And, and lastly too, I'll just yeah. say, to, to close the loop on that as well. Like it's depression is kind of a continuum, right? Like somebody can be kind of depressed, sort of depressed, very depressed. It seems like there's the potential for right. depression within everybody. And so, oh, sure. so, so, yeah. so thinking about mm -hmm. that, the broader implications of what your studies have shown for depression, you know, people lower end on the continuum could, could potentially massively benefit from psilocybin assisted therapy when done in the right context. Right. But right, I do know you have to go now. Um, lastly, do you just want to maybe quickly just kind of tease anything or mention any exciting new research that's coming out that 
maybe we can talk about another time. Um, Anything new in the Yeah, in the I mean, we're still research? seeing, like, with our current smoking work, um, you know, over 50% of people, like, at the year-long follow-up are smoke-free, and it's it's basically doubling the success rates of, of nicotine packed with the same talk therapy. So we're for a smoking cessation, it's still incredible. We could talk, you know, in the future about that, but like, yeah, it's, it's like the current results are really exciting. And anything else you're studying right now, other disorders or other compounds? That you're... About to start a study. Well, a bunch of studies, one with LSD to treat chronic pain, one to treat a psilocybin, to treat opioid dependence and, one to use a uh, uh, psilocybin to treat um, PTSD. So those will all hopefully be starting in the next few months. And so, yeah, uh, you know, and then hopefully having some results sometime after that. Yeah. Mm. It, sorry, you just said LSD for chronic pain, like chronic physical pain. Yeah, yeah, like uh, like lower back pain. Yep. Interesting. Wow, that's yeah. We'll have to talk about that next time. I'm so. Because, because I struggle a lot with chronic pain and I've had various uh, esteemed doctors in the field of psychosomatic pain um, and I've done LSD as well and it actually had a bit of the opposite effect and kind of made things oh, fascinating. Yep. a mm-hmm. little worse. We can maybe talk about next time why you chose LSD and why pairing that with, with chronic pain. That doesn't seem obvious to me or clear to me in any way, but I, I'm curious what the rationale behind that would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy to talk about the next one. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, listen, I'm I'm really excited for the research that you're doing. It's it's incredible. Um, I think you're bringing much needed um, empiricism, data, statistical analysis to something that is very difficult to put into those uh, terms, right? So I, I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, so so keep it up, and I'd love to chat again. Oh, thanks. My pleasure. And great chatting with you, Rav. And uh, yeah, great questions. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Have a good day, man. All right. You too. Take care.